So let's review. Um, we're going through the Old Testament. We're in this time period of the 70-year exile. Right after that, we call this the post-exilic period because it's after the exile. And we call these prophets, they're writing after the exile as the post-exilic prophets. So really, we only have three post-exilic prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. And then during that time period, we have some historical books across the top that give us the framework of what's going on, Ezra and Nehemiah. And what's really neat is when we look at those books, often they'll even mention the prophets, and you can see that relationship of what's going on historically. And so what we've done as a teaching team is we've tried to have Brian go through these historical books, and then the rest of us went through, Jim and I, went through Haggai and Zechariah. We're debating about Malachi or not, but we're trying to put together this whole era here. And part of the reason why we picked this time was it seems like we are in a good place after COVID to start talking about coming up out of exile and reevaluating what's God about to do. I think there's a great parallel there. So we're focusing in on this last time period here, and specifically in on Ezra and Zechariah is where we are. We already went through Haggai. All right, so we are getting close to the end of the book. We're the whole way in chapter 9 here, and we've covered quite a bit. And to review some of that imagery, here is some of the imagery we've seen. Zechariah has tons of imagery here. And so we started off at the beginning talking a bit about repentance, and we rolled into talking a bit about, is it good that God is a jealous God? And we talked about some aspects of what it means to be a jealous God, and why it actually throughout Scripture is seen as a very good thing. And we talked a little bit about how God measuring isn't always bad, because measuring could actually mean God wants to measure for the sake of blessing, and that's what's going on in Jerusalem. God measures Jerusalem and finds it's not big enough. We need to actually build this wall of fire. He will be this wall of fire around you so that we might be able to have enough blessings in this place. It's going to be so blessed, it's going to be beyond the walls of Jerusalem. And then he talked about this burnt stick and how he was snatched the stick out of the fire and you find that the burnt stick is actually the priest of the whole nation. He is this burnt stick and God is then going to take burnt sticks and turn them into these children of oil. The idea is this anointing of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to find that theme over and over again. These things that seem like they're about ready to pass away, seem like they have no value, God is going to see value in it and is going to show us that he can be able to redeem even that which is as lowly as that burnt stick. And then we talked a little bit about plumb lines, about how God was getting ready to, to build the temple. And when people looked at it from the outside, it was not impressive. It was just desolation. And what God said at that point was, don't despise the day of small things. He sees the plumb line. And when he sees the plumb line, he, he delights in that. And we ask the question of what is it that you do that God delights in, the thing that you're called to do. And I encourage you to seek that. And then what happened was God was going to um, say he's taking this wickedness out of the nation, and he had some specific things the nation was dealing with, and the idea was this wickedness was personified by this woman in the basket, and it was going to be taken back to Babylon. And then Jim talked a bit about them making a crown. God tells Zechariah he's supposed to make this crown for the, uh, for the priest, and we have this idea of a priest king that comes into play. And even talked a bit about the people are waiting there wondering, we're going back into the promised land, should we continue to fast? And what God's actually going to say is he's going to turn those fasts into feasts and he's going to look ahead to this new kingdom. So one of the things that Jim ended with was Zechariah 8.23 
This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, 10 people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let's go with you because we have heard God is with you. And so there is this picture of all nations coming together, gathering around the Jews and coming into this promised land. And we're going to see that there are some things that need to happen before that happens. By the way, if you don't know this, Grace does have all of our sermons up on a podcast. It's not quite as good as being able to come and see in person, not just because of the fellowship, but also because of all the awesome graphics you're going to see. Uh, I showed my kids here um, this week, and I, I, my son is pretty well convinced that I kind of meet where uh, coolness and cringe meet. That's kind of where I live. And so you're going to see some things that's kind of like how I make my decisions. Well, that's cool, and it's kind of cringe. I'm going to do it. I want that thing. Um, and I think that maybe is where I dwell. But with this, um, you can see the grace symbol that's supposed to look like a G and also s- spreading the gospel out throughout the world. And so be looking for that sign. And by the way, in preparation for this, I went back and I listened to Jim's two sermons. So like 40 minutes apiece, two sermons to make sure I'm on the same page and make sure I'm not having any holes because I kind of take a break in comparison when he's teaching and let him teach me. And so I would encourage you as you're trying to figure out how do you stay on track here? Well, you might want to go back and listen to the previous week's podcast and you can download it straight to your phone and be able to listen to it right from your phone. So, Zechariah 8.23. So keep this in your mind. This is where we're starting off, back in Zechariah 8, and that is the picture. Um, but there's an already and a not yet of the kingdom. You would think, okay, well, this is great. So we just wait here for everyone to grab a hold of the hem of the Jews' garments, and we just usher them into the promised land. It's not going to be that simple. There's going to be some spiritual warfare and some real warfare, some physical warfare that we can see in this realm that's going to happen before that. And we're going to see, though, that God does warfare differently than what we might expect. Now, if you've read the whole Bible and the whole New Testament, this is perfectly in line and you won't be surprised at all. But still, stepping into that battle is going to feel very um, vulnerable uh, because when you're not relying on yourself and your own weaponry, it makes it feel like you are there and someone else has to fight the battle. If you ever have to go to a battle that someone else is fighting, but they're making you stand in the middle of the battle, that feels very vulnerable because what are you supposed to do? Why are you even there? Why not just go fight that? And then when the battle's over, invite me in and I'll walk into the kingdom with you. But God doesn't do that. He has us go into the battle and then he fights the battle for us. And if you're not the one holding the weapon, it can feel like you're out of control because you kind of are. But the situation isn't out of control, just you are. So we'll get to that. So as we look now at the the title for this one is Foundations of the Kingdom. This is God's sovereign battle plan. And we're going to look at some of the steps that God has put in place between when this is going to happen, where where they are now, with uh, land and desolation, with all these other cities that seem like they have prosperity and Israel's coming back into their poverty, and that point where they are coming and grabbing the robes of the Jews and asking them, show me your God. So Jen, if you'll read this for us. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is in its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire." Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish, Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded, 
The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. All right, by the way, um, what I would encourage you to do, bring your Bibles along, follow along, and one of the things that I got to see in my generation, which was frustrating, was the invention of the NIV Bible. I'm not anti-NIV. What I am frustrated with is it used to be that we would all read together in one scripture, and we'd all bring our Bibles, and we all had the same translation. And they started putting the, the pulpit Bibles in, you know, in the back of the chairs, and then you start opening those. But it actually gets confusing sometimes when you open up all your translations that are different. Um, in this particular passage, there's a couple. Uh, we, won't, we won't deal with them too much. But there's a couple passages here where some translate it like this is God's eyes watching the world or this is our eyes watching, like the whole world's eyes watching God. There's another part later that talks about whether we're going to trample the, the stones, the sling stones of the enemy or the enemy is, um, we're throwing the sling stones at the enemy. The Hebrew isn't perfect in this. It's a language. And so the translations are going to be somewhat different. And if you compare the translations, even if it doesn't match what you see on the screen, know there's probably something that's going on in the Hebrew, and there's probably good reason why the translators translated them both ways. But in the end, usually when I'm teaching, what I try to do is bring those two meanings together and see is there something that the whole picture is saying, even if we can't figure out a couple verses here and there. So I encourage you, bring your Bibles along, open them up, follow along. If you see some differences, don't let it bother you, but let it get you curious so you can be able to figure out what does this mean. All right, so the first part is the humbling and gathering of the nations. So this makes sense to some degree. The Israelites are going to the promised land, and as they show up, they're looking around and they see some cities that are very fortified. And they have so much gold, so much silver amassed that it looks like dust, it's just like, they're, it's dust for them. They're so rich, it's just like piles of dust everywhere of gold and silver. And you can see how you'd be looking over to that nation thinking, we have nothing. They have everything. They're going to wipe us out. If they wanted to, they could wipe us out. So God's going to look at this and he's going to suggest, well, don't look at that stuff. That's all going to crumble. It's not going to be there. And then he talks about their, what they're consuming. Their teeth and their mouths need to be cleaned out. It's though they still have stuff, stuff tuck, uh, stuck in their teeth. And so there's a question about what does it mean to have this stuff in their teeth, this stuff in their mouth. And different theories could be here. Uncleaned foods, food sacrificed to idols, uh, food of greed and oppression. That they might be, uh, this might be stuff that they're getting from oppressing other people. It might have something to do with them not following Jewish law. It might have something to do with them following these other gods. I think it's actually all of those kinds of things combined together. The idea really is don't envy them because the wealth that they have didn't come from something that's good. It's not blessed of the Lord. And you'll see this all throughout the Old Testament. We need to be very careful that we don't look at what someone else has and be jealous of that because we need to realize sometimes that comes from dishonest gain. Not always, so don't think just because someone has something you don't, they must have done something wrong to get it. But still, what God is suggesting here is, don't think just because something ha they have something you don't have that they're necessarily in a better spot. You might be in a better spot, more blessable in where you are in your walk with the Lord. So that makes sense, humbling and gathering of the nations. But here's an interesting twist here. But they're gonna become like a clan of Judah who sets up camp in my house against armies and oppressors. So God is not just going to go in and wipe these people out. 
He has them in mind. He has their good in mind. And the idea is not that he's going to go destroy all these, all these people, but rather he has that in view that the kingdom of God is not merely for the Jews. It's first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. The idea is that he's reaching out through the Jews to the rest of the world. And if you study the Old Testament well, you'll start to see a pattern here where God is actually trying to have a plan of salvation for all peoples. Jen? Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So there's this coming of the shepherd king. If you've read the New Testament, we see this as Jesus riding on the donkey. We've got about a month until um, the Palm Sunday when this is celebrated. And so this isn't a new concept for us, but back then it might have been. Um, we see during that time period of the, between the Old Testament and the New, this becomes increasingly something not just Israel did, but other nations did as well. Um, we don't know if this is the first beginnings of this, or if this is something that other kings did. And it's not really that important if this is the first time this ever happened. The, the importance of it is understanding the difference between riding a war horse and riding a donkey. You see, if you come in riding a war horse, you kind of think, this is, this is different here. This is, this is powerful here. And not to make a political statement one way or the other here, just, just pictures-wise, there's a difference between, if you look at um, some of the memes from way back, you'll sometimes see certain leaders of certain places and they are um, riding a horse through the river or they're, um, sometimes people will superimpose them riding on a bear. Sometimes they're bare-chested. So you'll see like these, I'm thinking of one particular leader, I won't say it was, but there's this one particular leader, he's bare-chested, he's in his 60s, he's riding a horse across the water and then they show a picture of our president with his bicycle helmet and his little puppy, right? It's not a fair comparison because puppies and bicycle helmets are good, but at the same time, there is a sense in which, which one makes you feel like, ah, yeah, this guy is somebody who you should be afraid of here, right? And, that, and again, that's not always what we want to do when we pose for pictures. We don't think about what's the toughest animal I can pose with. But at the same time, there is a sense here that if you see someone coming through on a war horse, there's a sense in which you might think, ah, there's my powerful leader. That guy can be able to fight for us. But that's not what they choose. Instead, there's something else with that. Instead, the donkey. Now, the donkey's a little bit different. It's not supposed to be comical, but it almost is. You have this guy all dressed in his battle garb, gets on a donkey and rides through town. That's a lot different than the guy on the war horse, isn't it? But which one seems more approachable? You know, which one are you more likely to try to reach out and shake his hand? You're not going to be reaching up to the guy on the big horse. You know, but the guy on the donkey, you're going to think, oh, that's a guy that maybe I can relate to. And you might think like, yeah, but is he going to ride that donkey in the battle? No, this is not a battle donkey, all right? He's not actually going to ride the donkey into battle, but it's a picture here of the kind of king that he is. He's coming in gentleness. He's not this prideful king that you can't have access to. There's a humbleness here. And you're starting to see a theme develop, right? You see there's a humbling of the nations because until they're humbled, they're not going to be able to receive the kingdom. And so sometimes we wonder, why does God have to bring judgment upon people in order for them to receive his blessings? Well, that's the question that we have to ask ourselves. Why is it that we have to be humbled in order to receive God's blessings? We don't have to be. You can be humble and have more things. But you realize the more money that you have, often it's going to make you more of what you are. 
So if you were to win the lottery, it would just make you more of what you were. It wouldn't be something that would totally change your life in one sense. It's just going to amplify the kind of person you are. If you're really giving, you'll give more. If you're really self-centered, you're going to spend more on yourself. If you're someone who does evil things with the little that you have, you'll probably do greater evil when you have the money. So this is something more so that they would actually say is better. There's, a, there's something quantitatively better, but it's counterintuitive in the sense that you have to be willing to humble yourself in order to be able to relate to the people. So in some ways, maybe it's not as good to ride a horse or a bear. Maybe it'd be better to have the dog and the bicycle helmet because people aren't as intimidated. But what about the enemies? We have to think about what the enemies are going to think about this. So we'll get to that. So then he comes in, stage two here, you know, step two of this. He's going to destroy the chariots and the bows. That is a horrible wartime strategy. Like, all right, how many chariots do we got? And you count them up. You can see the generals. We have this many chariots. Okay, burn them. All right, okay. And how many bows do we have? This many. Okay, great. Burn them. Get rid of them. Break the bow. And so he's coming in, and he's humbling the armies. You guys can think of other stories like this. This is consistent with the story of Gideon, where he goes through, your army's too big. Whittle it down. Still too big. Whittle it down. Okay, now your army is small enough, so here's your weapons. You get a torch and a pot, and we're going to go in the middle of the night, and we're going to freak them out, and they're going to... They don't, I don't even know if they know what they're getting ready to do. But can you imagine walking into battle, and you've got a pot and a torch? It's like, all right, guys, we're going to go in the middle of the camp with the pot and the torch. Like, I hope this works because we're in the middle here. You know, it's like, can we throw it from the outside of the camp and run away? That would be good, right? But no, you have all that's going on here, and it, it, they don't seem like they're girded for battle. They're, they're relying on some divine being doing something supernatural that they couldn't do themselves. And that's kind of scary because it does not make logical sense. But afterwards, it makes sense. Ah, oh, well, yeah, that's what's going to happen. Oh, well, sure. Yeah, I was with it all along, right? And then the same thing here. Um, we have the chariots. And the idea here then is, yeah, burn the chariots. Get rid of this. So it's another counterintuitive strategy. Jen. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore you to double. Okay, prisoners of hope. Interesting. I want to talk a little bit about cisterns, all right? Because we don't normally have cisterns and wells as much. A cistern is different than a well. A well is something where the water flows up from the ground and is collected there. Um, now, a cistern is something that's normally relying on rain. Um, and it, it's really amazing when you look at the cisterns that they have in Israel. And the idea, really, if you were living in one of these countries, so say you go to Cyprus or one of these other Middle Eastern countries, what you'll find is they actually will have furniture outside. Like you'll have a velvet couch, and they'll just leave it out all the time. You'll be at a restaurant, and you'll go outside and eat, and you'll be sitting on plush furniture outside. And you're like, this is the weirdest thing ever. But when you realize it only rains you know, a couple times every once in a while, you realize, well, they can do that. And they're not going to ruin their couch. And so it's really important. Jim's going to talk a little bit more about the idea of a spring rain, the idea of some other things from this passage. But this spring rain, if you didn't have a cistern to hold the rain, well, then you wouldn't be able to have water when you needed it. So having a cistern that actually works is very important. And so with this, they would carve out these cisterns, and so they would carve straight down into solid rock, and then the water would be guided into this, and then you would have the water as long as you needed it to be able to save it for later. So it's for holding water. So if a cistern doesn't hold water, you have just wasted a ton of your life carving out the cistern. This isn't digging in the ground to hit water. This is solid rock. This is a lot of work just to be able to have a cistern. 
So here's a couple examples of some cisterns here. This one's you know, kind of medium size. This one's very large. Um, but can you can imagine if you have a cistern that no longer works, it can actually become a liability to you. Um, way back, way back, um, there was a show called Lassie, and the running joke with it was that Timmy fell in a well. All the time, there's this character that falls in the well, and the dog's supposed to, uh, supposed to be able to save the kid. What? Timmy fell in the well is that the dog could talk. And so for generations, people joked about Timmy falling in the well, even though we didn't even know what Lassie was necessarily, but wells are dangerous for everybody. So if you have a, a well or a cistern on your property, it can be dangerous, whether it has water or not. And so with that, some people actually picked up and capitalized on the idea that a cistern could be dangerous. It could be dangerous and helpful, for example. So both Joseph and Jeremiah weren't thrown in wells, they were thrown in cisterns. And in this case, um, we see with the story of Joseph, you remember his, his brothers were selling him into slavery. The one brother thought, well, if we can just put him in the cistern for now, I'll come free him later. But he ended up getting sold before the other brother could come. Well, in the case of Jeremiah, there was so much mud in the bottom of the cistern that they threw him in, it took 30 men to pull him out. And so he stuck down in the mud. And so this cistern either was not completely dry or it wasn't broken or something because he was in the mud maybe up to his chest and there are 30 men pulling him out of the cistern. So whether you fell in the well, which it could be a trap because all you need to do is put something over top of it and lure people in and you could actually have a trap like this way or it could become a prison. So cisterns, dry cisterns, become synonymous with prisons because they were very hard to get out of once you got into. And so people started using these dry cisterns as prisons. And you could, use a, you could use a working cistern as that as well, but once it rained, that could actually be very bad for the person in the cistern if it filled out beyond where they could stand. Um, but still, a dry cistern is just as bad because you have no water. And so after a few days, it could be very bad for you. So I want to talk about the idea of, of broken cisterns, because this is prophecy, so we wouldn't be surprised if prophecy maybe had some sort of spiritual meaning here as well. When you look at Jeremiah, remember Jeremiah is the weeping prophet, the guy who was crying because Israel went off into, into captivity. Um, he's somebody who wrote even into the exilic period, so he's right within this time period, right before the time period we're talking about. He talks about these broken cisterns. So Jen, would you read for us Jeremiah 2, 9 through 13? Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children, I will contend. For cross to the coats of Cyprus and see, or send to Gadar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they, they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So you see a picture here that this is talking about carving idols. You try to carve this idol, but it's going to be empty. God is not in the idol. And so you carve out this empty idol, and the idea is that we fall into this empty cistern. So when the picture is that idols are like empty cisterns, that if you try to rely on this idol, it has no water for you, uh, and it's trying to substitute for God who has the living water. And so the idea is don't be carving out idols because these idols then are cisterns that you'll fall into. And you can see how this kind of ties together. If you have a culture where you start to understand, watch out, don't go in that field because you might fall in the cistern, or that you have culture where you talk about people being trapped in a cistern somewhere, you can see how there's this imagery of a dry cistern that's worthless and also something that could maybe trap you in it. 
Zechariah 9, 13 through 15, Jen. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. The Lord will save his people. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. So we got quite a few word pictures here. The idea is that God is now weaponizing Israel, and he's already taken away their weapons, but now these weaponless people become the weapons in the hands of the Lord. So Judah becomes God's bow, Ephraim becomes God's arrow, sons of Zion becomes God's sword. So the picture here, there's quite a few pictures all together. That's not all that's happening. He also talks about this idea that God's arrows coming like lightning and the idea of God bringing a whirlwind up from the south, just like it used to talk about earlier, this disaster coming from the north. Well, now these southern tribes are now coming up and the idea is that God is bringing up and using his people as weapons. Now, that's not to say necessarily they don't ever take up a weapon, but the picture here really is that Israel is taking up the sword And the idea then is that they're putting the swords down and they become the Lord's weapon. So what I almost picture is that they take the swords and I almost picture them still having the scabbard on. You can imagine an army just showing up and it's not that, like if you show up and you have no sword, you just think like, what an ill-prepared people. But if you show up and you have your scabbard on, it's almost like they see you surrendered something down. You almost want to show up with just a scabbard to let them know, I didn't come here because I'm stupid. I put it down intentionally here because the Lord is using me as the weapon. And this is a mystery here. Uh, this isn't, I don't think this is the end all to saying whether or not you should be a non-combatant in war or not. Remember, Brian's brought this up on a couple occasions where you have Nehemiah talking about having the trowel in one hand and the sword in another. And you see other passages where it seems more pacifistic. Um, by the way, Jesus wasn't a pacifist. He was an activist. He was just a non-combatant. There's a difference. Um, so we can work through that some. But the idea here really is there's a lot of war language, and I don't want to get into this too much. If you look at the passages enough, there's enough here that seems like it's talking a lot about blood and other things, like physical shedding of blood in here. So this is a war passage, and I didn't like it. I got into this passage, and I'm like, oh, this was supposed to be about the humble king on a donkey, and here we have all this war passage stuff. But you start looking at this, what does it mean for a person to be the bow? What does it mean for a person or a tribe to be the arrow? What does it mean for a person or tribe to be the sword? And it's a mystery, but clearly he's already said he's destroying the chariots. He already said he's destroying the bows. He's already going to fight the battles for the other nations. There's something here that seems like maybe there is a spiritual battle that takes priority over the physical battle that's going on. And to get caught up in the physical battle might be to miss the spiritual battle that's going on. And it's not to say that no one should be fighting the physical battle, but sometimes we fight physical battles in a spiritual way and we win both. Now by the mildness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you, for though we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not the weapons of the world. Instead, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We tear down arguments and every presumption set up against the knowledge of Christ, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience as soon as your obedience is complete. 
All right, so one of, the, one of the jumps that we have to make between Old Testament and New Testament is just because God wrote something to Israel doesn't mean that it necessarily applies to you. Some battles have already been fought. Some battles have already been won and lost. Um, but it's important for us to consider what are the timeless truths with this timeless God for this people that he's bringing for us. And I think part of that is this ideology of, of warfare. And so with this, it seems like even today, that which God was telling Israel is something that applies to us, is that we have to learn to fight with different kinds of weapons. And our weapons are not going to be the kind of weapons that the world wields, but it's going to be the kind of things that tear down arguments and presumptions. Um, And it's going to have something to do with taking captive thoughts and making them obedient to Christ. And again, this isn't saying you can never pick up the sword, but what it is suggesting is there is a battle to be won here that does not fight with the weapons of the world. And I can tell you, if you have the choice of just picking up a sword and maybe hoping that something good's gonna come of it, it seems to some, I'm sure, to be the easier battle to try to fight. Um, Even, uh, I've been told before that sometimes people can be great musicians because they can have the instrument in front of them and they feel like that the instrument helps them, gets between them and the people, and it's a, a means to communicate with them, and it, there's a, a comfort by hiding behind your instrument. But standing up front, the musicians who were standing up front, if they were to stand up for some other reason, it would be hard because the instrument is there. And the same thing in battle, that weapon kind of gives you a comfort to hold on to it and feel like this is what I'm fighting with. But what we're being shown here is that we are the weapons, that somehow the Lord is going to use us to be these weapons. And we'll look at that in a second here, what this means. Okay, go ahead. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. All right, so this is, this is the result of the plan. This is, this is where it ends up. The idea is salvation. But the pictures of salvation are wine, grain, jewels, and sheep. And some of these are the things that we are. Some of these are the things that are God's provisions here. And when, when he, the picture is that God has these sheep spotted out across the land. And the idea is that we are shining this light of these gemstones. So um, whenever you get engaged in our society because of various aspects of um, culture and marketing, the diamond has become now the symbol for marriage. It used to be the pearl. Um, the ruby is actually rarer but because of certain families that are in position and certain cultural things, the diamond is forever, right? And that's now become the the saying. Um, So the diamond and the jewel have some things that you learn about. If you don't know about them now and you follow our cultural customs, you're probably going to learn about what 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 is it, four? Cut, clarity, color, carrot, right? Four C's. And you'll have people having to go out and learn. What, what are you going to get? Are you going to sacrifice on one or the other? How are you going to, to make these things work out? It was neat for me because Jen's uncle was a jeweler. And before we were even really dating, he said like, hey, you know, if you, if you choose to propose to her, this is like in front of her, um, saying like, you know, I, you know I, I can hook you up. And I was sort of like, oh man, this is awkward, but noted. And so I was able to go through him. It was really neat. I could go through a catalog and look at gemstones and look at rings. And like the ring itself was like 30 bucks. It was sweet. You realize like what the markup actually is on these things. But one of the neat things about Jen's diamond is that it's practically colorless. Um, And even though it has some flecks of carbon, they're like strategically cut in the middle of the diamond so you can't see them. So you look at it and it looks like there's no carbon in it. It's pretty amazing. But what's neat when we were at the old Grace building, 
um, after we got married, um, she would look down at this ring and it was neat because the light would shine down from all the lights at Grace and it would shine out and would actually light up the row. It's not, it's not that big, but with that, the light would be shining out from even this smaller stone would shine out across the, the room and it would sparkle. And when we look at what God is suggesting here, it's like we're the crown jewels is what it's saying. Um, but the crown jewels are set out in the land so that when people see us shining, then it becomes this testament of the glory of God. And yet, you understand a little bit, people struggle theologically with what it means to be in the image of God. One of the things that clarified it for me in part is most places, most temples, they build a building and then in the middle there's this image. Well, what it seems like in the garden, man was created as God's image and the idea really was this was sort of like a first temple that we are the image. Instead of having some false idol that's set up, we are the image of God, and through, through us, all creation sees. This is what the image of God is like. And so when you see this pure, clear, sparkling, cut diamond, by the way, uncut diamonds don't really sparkle much. You won't even recognize it, pick it up, and it's a pretty stone, but it, it's, there's something that has to happen. It has to be cut. It has to, um, God's light has to shine through it in order for it to actually um, shine like this. But the idea is it's as though we're these sheep that's scattered across the land, we're these diamonds, these precious stones that are shining, and that somehow is going to be a testament of God's glory. Even better than if we went and killed a bunch of people with a sword. Can you imagine that? God's glory shining through us would be better than killing people with a sword? Uh, I can. I can see how that could be better. Uh, especially if those people then are going to come and become a part of us, like a tribe. And by the way, we're the ones added in. Um, you know, the God, God reached out through the, through the Jews, and we're the ones added into this whole kingdom. But that doesn't mean that the Jew is more special to God than us. Don't, if you've taken that away um, from the text, I think you've gone too far, um, because God is loving us through the Jews. And there's a lot of suffering that the Jews had to go through that you wouldn't want to go through either to be a Jew. And so if you're envious of the Jews, I can see why there's certain things, but there's other things that are not so envious in their circumstances. But the idea here is that God is bringing together all nations. So I don't know what your ethnic background is, you know, whether you're male or female or what country you're from, but the idea is that God has to sometimes humble us and our nations to help us to see what is the spiritual thing that goes beyond all other things. And he's going to provide us with those needs as well. So sheep, um, our need, uh, and God's shepherd, it helps us to see we're the needy ones, he is the shepherd. The idea of shining jewels is the idea of God's glory shining through us. And this wine and grain is God's provision for us. And it does specifically talk about men and women here, this idea of this mutual blessing for men and women. So the result, um, we're his sheep. He is, he's our shepherd. This is straight, bringing you the New Testament here. John 10, his righteousness is going to shine like the sun through us in the kingdom. Matthew 13, he's going to supply our needs according to the riches of his kingdom. These are all New Testament concepts here. Still same God, still same lessons, still applying it here in the New Covenant era as we did in the Old Covenant era. So application here. A few things and then we'll, we'll pray through this. So the first question that I would have is, are you living outside of the kingdom? Are you relying on something else outside of God's kingdom in that, in that stronghold, in that surrounded by your riches, are you living outside of the kingdom? So what's your pile of silver? What's your stronghold? What's stuck in your teeth? Have you been consuming anything that's detestable? When the Lord looks down upon you, would he say, I need to get those things out of their teeth. I need to get these things off of their breath. 
Are you part of God's sheepfold? Are you a shining jewel as a part of this? Are you caught in an empty cistern? Are you waging war with the weapons of the world, or are you God's weapon? And you have to understand more and more, God's going to show you specifically what your role is in the kingdom here in the already and the not yet. So let's just take a moment here and pray and just see what God has to say. I could make some analogies or try to make a list of things, but I found normally if we just call upon the name of the Lord, the Lord will reveal himself to you. What's this? You want to go back one more? You see that? Okay. Take a moment and pray through these things. Um, I've been uh, trolling on a lot of atheists and um, other kinds of uh, Facebook meme sites so I can be able to see where people see our holes as being. And it's interesting how much people will try to act like there's no apologetic that can prove to you that God exists, no logical argument. And I can't help but think that there's some truth to that. Um, I think my strongest apologetic is if someone were to argue with me and say, well, prove to me that God exists right now, I would say, well, would you like to talk with him right now? Are you willing to humble yourself to listen to see if the Lord speaks to you? And that would be my apologetic. Because when the Lord opens your heart, he opens your soul and reveals the mysteries to you that you didn't even realize about yourself, that might be the true and living God. So let's just pray for a moment and ask the Lord to guide us through this. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you that you are a God of all nations. You are a God who redeems men and women of every race, no matter what detestable things we've allowed into our bodies. You're a humble king who makes his people shine like jewels in your crown across the land. Lord, we hold to the promises of the already and the not yet of your kingdom. And we ask, would you search everyone here? And would you show each one of us if we are living inside or outside of your kingdom? So Lord, I ask, would you bring our minds to rest? Everyone here, would you push aside anything that's trying to distract? Just bring our minds to rest and our hearts to peace. Would you give us a sense, what are we trusting in? Lord, what are we trusting in? Would you strip away everything that we are trusting in that's not of you? Even the things you've given that have been your blessings, Lord, we ask that we not be ensnared by them. And Lord, would you show us, are we a part of your flock? Are we your children? Are we wayward children or are we walking in fellowship with you? Would you give us a sense of how you feel about us? How you think about us? And the purpose of this is just for you to listen to the Lord. And so if you end up getting and talking with him, feel free to ignore what I'm saying. And just have that conversation with him. Lord, for each person here, would you help us to see, are we a sparkling jewel that shines out to the land? How so, Lord? What about us shines? What is that thing that you want the world to see in us? Would you strip away everything else that's getting in the way of that light shining in us and through us? And Lord, I pray for those of us who have consumed detestable things with our mouths, with our eyes, with our minds. 
Would you strip that away, Lord? Help us to see what are those detestable things that you want to wash out of our mouths, pick out of our teeth. Anything we're doing in selfishness, greed, envy, lust, anything that's counter to your kingdom. And Lord, we pray for those who are still caught in empty cisterns. Would you help us to see what what brought us into the cistern? I pray, would you help each person here to be able to help those others out? Whether it takes 30 of us for one person to pull them out, would you help us, Lord, to see when's the right timing? Would you help us, Lord, to pull these people out using the weapons of warfare you've given? Pray this all in the name of Christ. Amen.